Good evening and welcome to Headley Park Church. Uh, great to see you. I understand you had a good time this morning and we did at Phillips Street too. And it's good to be together as two churches tonight and to be able to think about this wonderful theme of compassion. We're working our way through a book called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. Chapter one was on equality, why we treat people as equal. And two, the theme he pulls out is compassion. How is it that everyone in the West, particularly, came to believe in compassion? And his argument is always we believe these things because of the influence and the ongoing influence of Jesus Christ. These things are not innate in us as human beings. They're things we've been taught by Jesus himself. But I love this one particularly because compassion is also an attribute of the God that we worship. He's a God of compassion. And it just lends itself to praise and to prayer and to worship um, that we have a God who is full of compassion. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much we can gather tonight in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that um, you've drawn us together as family, brothers and sisters, united in him, saved through the gospel of grace. And we thank you that even as we say gospel of grace, we remember your amazing compassion your kindness to people like us who were dead in our sins, lost in our transgressions, going our own way. And in that moment, you reached down and you saved us. And so we want to say thank you tonight. And we want to pray, Father God, that we will praise and worship you for your kindness to us. And then, Lord, you'd equip us to go out with that same heart of compassion, to share your love with those who don't yet know you, that they might see the beauty and the wonder and the, the majesty of the God that we serve revealed in his humility and his compassion. So, Father, we pray, help us tonight. Help us to focus ourselves upon you. Help us to meet with you here. Thank you that you draw near as we draw near to you. And, Father, we pray that tonight each and every heart in this room would be drawn afresh to Jesus, for we ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. I love these words about the Lord Jesus from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus and his ministry. And he said this, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I don't know how you've come feeling tonight. You might be on top of the world. You might be feeling harassed and helpless. There's probably we're all on a continuum somewhere. But the amazing thing is that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, the Lord Jesus sees us and he has compassion on us. And we're never without a shepherd because we know the good shepherd of the sheep. Let's just pray again. Father, we thank you so much that we come before a God who loves like you love. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. And then we look again to the cross and we remember afresh how deep your love flows, how wonderful your compassion is that you would accept people like us and call us friends and family. 
your sons and daughters saved through the blood of your precious son. And Lord, on those days where we feel that the whole world is against us, where we feel the weight of darkness pressing in, help us to remember that who we are was established for all eternity at the cross. That in that moment, all of our debt was paid. The price on our heads was dealt with. And now we stand as ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven before a God of amazing grace. So we pray you bless us here tonight. Draw near, we pray, and teach us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're working our way through a book called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. And uh, if you were here last time, we watched an introductory video that was so good. I'm actually going to show it again. It's a little cartoon. And if you weren't here last time, it'll help you to catch up. And if you can't remember it all, or you can't remember anything from last time, it'll operate as a catch up. So Luke, run VT. This is Sally. Sally is a rational person who could never make a leap of faith like Robbie up there. Look at Robbie. He's a faith head floating around unsupported by anything. No, Sally simply goes by the evidence and the assured findings of science and reason. I mean, obviously Sally believes that all people are equal. That's just normal. And that society must protect its weakest members, obviously. She is certain that consent is essential to sex, and that education, not coercion, is the path to enlightenment. She trusts science and what it can deliver the world. She is certain that all people should be free, and she's concerned to reform the evils of yesterday as we progress to a brighter tomorrow. Oh, hey, Robbie, what are you doing down here? That's right. Sally is a believer. Because none of these morals, assumptions, or deep intuitions are the result of logic or scientific experiments. You can't prove equality, compassion, consent, or any of these values that we live by every day. We believe in these values. We stake our lives on them. But they're not the kinds of things you can deduce logically or demonstrate scientifically. It turns out that Sally is a believer. She doesn't need to make a leap of faith. She's already living at a great height. Day by day, minute by minute, she assumes any number of values that cannot be proven with mathematical certainty. The solid ground she thinks she's standing on is not the ground of simple logic or reason. Actually, the values she lives by are founded on something else, something she might not have considered. And without that foundation, the values she lives by don't really make sense. You see, Sally lives her life based on the values of the Jesus revolution. She doesn't know that's where her values have come from. She's never been to church. She's never read the Bible for herself. But she's grown up in a culture built by Jesus and the values he has injected into the world. Sally has been assuming some deeply Christian truths all along, even if she never really examined them. But if she takes the time to look where she's standing, she might just find that she's more of a person of faith than she thought. Sally's challenge is not to take a leap of faith. Through the Jesus revolution, history has already taken an almighty leap. Sally, along with the rest of us, are already in midair. What she needs is some ground beneath her feet, and it's Jesus alone who can provide it.
That's the argument of the air we breathe. It charts the advance of the Jesus revolution, from Genesis to the modern day, and from equality to progress. It's for the Robbies of the world, who are happy to be known as believers. And it's for the Sallies too, for those who thought that they were incapable of faith. It turns out that through Jesus and the growth of his movement, beliefs are far more common than we think. They are the air we breathe. Do encourage you to read the book if you haven't it's a really good read and we are i take it in a different direction on sunday evening so it won't just be more of the same um, but i'm building off what i read from that book um, i'm also going to ground when i do these sessions what we do in scripture laura come on up okay so isaiah chapter 61 the spirit of the sovereign lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks, foreigners will work your fields and vineyards, and you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministries sorry you will be named ministers of our god you will feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast instead of your shame you will receive a double portion and instead of disgrace you will rejoice in your inheritance and so you will inherit a double portion in your land and everlasting joy will be yours for i the lord love justice i hate robbery and wrongdoing in my faithfulness i will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Thank you, Laura. We're going to watch uh, another video now where Glenn Scrivener introduces um, the, the chapter on compassion and the center of his arguments, about three minutes long, I think. What should we do with the weak, the poor, the despised, and the disabled? Friedrich Nietzsche thought he knew. In the 19th century, the German philosopher said, the weak and ill-constituted shall perish, and one shall help them to do so. He was pointing to the law of nature, which is the law of selection, in which the fittest survive. And Nietzsche thought, if the fittest do survive, 
then really the fittest should survive. So he had a very strong doctrine that if in nature we see the fittest surviving and the weakest perishing, we can give nature a helping hand. We shall help the weakest to be winnowed and we shall help the strongest to become stronger. It's really a terrifying vision of reality in which there is survival of the fittest and the sacrifice of the weakest. But I don't think you believe that. I think you believe in compassion. I think you believe in what Nietzsche sneeringly called pity. He said, pity on the whole thwarts the law of evolution, which is the law of selection. And the great problem, said Nietzsche, is that Christianity has taken the part of all the weak, the low, the botched. It has made an ideal out of antagonism to all the self-preservative instincts of sound life. Let me translate that. He says, sound life is self-preservation. You ought to try to preserve yourself. And if the weak and the low and the disabled and the despised are dragging you down, you should eliminate them so that you can soar to greater heights of strength. That is what nature thought. And I'm, I bet it's not what you think. You believe in pity. You believe in compassion. And I know why. And Nietzsche knows why. Nietzsche said it's Christianity that has taught you to prize the lowly and the weak and the poor and the disabled. Why? Well, Nietzsche saw it very clearly. He said the cross is the transvaluations, the transvaluation of all values. On the cross, the strongest becomes the weakest and the fittest is sacrificed so that we, the weakest, might survive. The fittest is sacrificed for the weakest and the weakest are preserved through that sacrifice of the strong. And Nietzsche saw it very clearly. It's Christianity that has taught the sacrifice of the strongest for the preservation and the survival of the weakest. Where do you get your idea from that we ought to preserve the lowly and the weak? You get it from Jesus. Really, you get it uniquely from Jesus and from the revolution that he has birthed. Now, do you believe in the supernatural? Uh, many people find it impossible to believe in the supernatural in today's day and age. Are we really meant to believe in angels and pixie dust and fairies and those sorts of things? Um, but here is a way in which you already believe in the supernatural. You already believe that we should treat people better than the way nature treats them that we should not cast off the weak and the low and the despised and the botched and the disabled and that category of people that, that Nietzsche said to destroy. We think that a society should be judged by the way it treats its weakest members. Where do you get that idea from? Uniquely, we've got it from the Christian revolution. If you believe in compassion and you believe in the supernatural, Keep tugging at that belief. Keep pulling at that thread and you'll find your way all the way back to Jesus. So that's where we're going to go tonight. We're going to think about how that belief in compassion isn't natural. It's not something that comes from within us. And we'll think about why. We're going to think about how it is supernatural. We'll think about why. And we're going to think about how it's transformational, how it actually changes the world in which we live.
Last summer, we, Susan and I went to visit uh, friends of ours in the Middle East, one of whom's here tonight, but I want this to go on the internet, so I'm not going to say any more. And uh, we met some of their friends, and we got on well, and that was uh, a good thing. And after we got back, um, we had some news shared with us. There was sad news. One of them, their dog had died, and another one had had a, a, a difficult situation that they'd been through. And Susan, who's not here tonight, so I can embarrass her freely, although she didn't know the story was coming. Uh, Susan was moved by those stories. We'd only met those people a couple of times, but she decided to write a card to each of them to express how she felt over the, the death of the dog. And I can't even remember what the other situation was that moved Susan to write. But what I do remember is our friend, leaving a message on my phone to talk about the reaction of her friends in the Middle East. Here was part of the message that she sent back. I typed it out today. I re-listened to it. Oh, Luke, I think I've got it there. There we are. One of them, when they received the card, said this. No one has ever done this for me. Nobody has ever sent me a card like this. I'm not worthy to receive this sort of love from people who don't even know me. Now, I'm not telling you this to big up Susan, although I, I know how kind and great she is. I, I'm telling you this because I was struck by the reaction. You see, this is a country where the gospel of Jesus Christ has never really taken root. There have been Christians living there. There still are to this day, but it's never been a Christian country. And that matters. You see, whether or not we know it, 1,500 years of Jesus' presence in our land have taught us some things. They've taught us how to be kind to people. They've taught us how to feel compassion towards people when they go through dark times in their lives. They've taught us how to send cards like these so that probably you wouldn't be surprised at all if you received a card like this. I've had many over the years. Why is that? Because Jesus has taught us how to love. What I want you to understand clearly tonight, because we're being lied to all the time by the world around us is this. Compassion isn't natural. It does not reside deep down in the human heart, just waiting to be found. We're going to talk about that up front because our world tells us a different story. It says if you dig deep enough into the human heart, at rock bottom, what you find is goodness. And the Bible says that isn't so. But if we're not very careful, we buy into the lies and the outworking of that lie and the way that we think. Secondly, though, compassion is supernatural. And it, uh, that's been the thing that's thrilled me as I've been thinking about it this week drawing near to our God and to his compassion, and then seeing how compassion is transformational. It changes things. And so tonight we're going to work through, not as we usually do, as we dwell all in one passage. I'm going to refer back to Isaiah 61 a number of times, but we're going to go far and wide tonight as well. So let's start with that first point. Compassion isn't natural. So if you're in school today, and some of you are, there's a lot of talk about self-esteem. And the idea behind self-esteem 
is that if only we thought more of ourselves, if only we were more confident in who we are, then we would leave, live better lives. We would be free to celebrate who we are and we would live better as a result. That is not a biblical idea. That's an idea that flows out of a deep-seated belief that human beings are fundamentally good. That if you dig down far enough, you're going to find goodness in there. That every person actually is good deep down. We should be surprised if they don't behave that way. But the Bible tells us a different story. A very different story. Back in Genesis 3, it tells us about a rebellion against God by Adam and Eve. That they broke the one law of God and therefore the whole law of God and ever since then the human heart has been in rebellion against its creator that deep down in our hearts we're selfish and self-centered we want self-rule we want to be able to determine how the world runs for our own benefit and actually we idolize ourselves we want us to be the center of the universe the Apostle Paul sums it up in the New Testament like this in Ephesians. He says, as for you, writing to the Ephesian church, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's what the Bible says we're like. We're cut off from God. We're dead when it comes to our spiritual life and our walk with him. We're disobedient. We do things that we know we shouldn't do. And actually, deep down, we deserve the very wrath of God. And when you accept that, that that vertical dimension between us and God is broken, then you see how that plays out horizontally between human beings. James, Jesus' half-brother, put it like this. So same uh, mum, different dad. James puts it like this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You don't have because you do not ask God. That link is broken. But when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So human nature without God, cut off from him, becomes increasingly self-centered and even violent and just desiring to get our own way no matter what the cost. Genesis is the book of origins. It explains where the world come from, it explains where we come from, and it tells the story of the earliest days of humanity. So after the fall, many of you will know that in chapter four, there's Cain and there's Abel. And Cain murders his brother out of jealousy. But it doesn't end there. Actually, by chapter 6, the evil has spread so far that the Lord says this, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We don't want to believe that. We don't want to face that. We want to believe that we're better than that. But when God digs down to the deepest inclinations of the human heart, he sees that the human heart is evil, that actually desires what's contrary to him. And I find this very moving. The Lord regretted that he'd made human beings on the earth. 
and his heart was deeply troubled. We'll puzzle over that for a while, but it's incredibly sad. The pinnacle of God's creation, as we were thinking about last time, was man-made in his image to reflect his glory. And when God looked at that reflection, it was so marred, so broken, so committed to evil rather than good that God looked at the damage to this world and his heart was deeply troubled. And we know what follows. It's the flood of Genesis. He wipes humanity from the face of the earth and begins again with eight people. But Genesis shows that isn't the end of the story of human evil. Noah himself is deeply flawed, but so are the rest of the human beings. By chapter 11, human beings are trying to build a tower to make a name great for themselves. God starts again with Abraham, but Abraham repeatedly lies to save his own skin and puts his wife in danger every time he does. There are struggles between the women, between Hagar and Sarah. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Hagar was her servant. And you watch that relationship ripped apart till Hagar runs away. And in a later generation, Leah and Rachel, two sisters who are rivals to one another. There's sexual immorality throughout Genesis. Sodom and Gomorrah are famous. Lot sleeps with his own daughters. And Judah, who's obviously one of uh, Jacob's sons and goes on to be the leader of the greatest tribe that will lead to Christ, sleeps with his daughter-in-law. There's a pattern of people living life their own way. And Genesis is full of deception. Jacob's own name means deceiver. And his sons then deceive him into believing Joseph's dead when really they've sold him into slavery. There's very little compassion People are living for other things and for other values. And it doesn't end there. In the passage we read in Isaiah, about a thousand years later, the backdrop of Isaiah 61 is all to do with the destruction all around the prophet and the need for someone to put it right. If you just scan through, if you look at verse one, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. There's poverty. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. People are, are, are brokenhearted and no one has bound them up. There are people who are captive. There are people who are in prison. There are people in verse 3 who are in despair. All the way through there, there's just a sadness. There are people who grieve in Zion. There are people who are mourning. There are people who are caught up in a spirit of despair. And all around them, there's ruin. The hope of Israel, the hope of the land, was to restore Eden. It was to create a place where people could worship God again in plenty. But look at verse 4. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. The restart that, Eden, uh, that Israel was supposed to bring hadn't led where they hoped that it would. And verse 8 says, For I, the Lord, love justice, but what do I see? I hate robbery and wrongdoing. All in the land was injustice and heartbreak and evil. And things were no better a thousand, well, not quite a thousand years, 700 years on again, when Jesus came. He came into our world as our maker, the word became flesh. And yet he experienced the worst of human cruelty. Just a few examples around about the Christmas story. Do you remember Herod? And to try to eliminate 
Jesus. He actually massacres all those under two years old. And Jesus himself is rescued, but lives in Egypt as a refugee. When he comes back and his own ministry takes place, he's rejected by his own people and then by his family. His mother and brothers think he's out of his mind. And then there are all the events we've thought about recently in the mornings leading up to the cross. Betrayal, rejection, a mock trial. And then all of the hatred that came upon him, the cruelty of the Roman soldiers, even before he gets to the cross. And there he's nailed up naked in front of the world. Where was the compassion for Jesus? The answer is there wasn't any. Because when God comes to town, it shows up what we're like at the deepest level and in our hearts. It shows up that wickedness. A bit like if you've ever been somewhere and they put a UV thing on your hand and you have to get in and out. This is going back a long time. I've not been to a nightclub since I was 18. Uh, But in those days, they used to stamp your hands so you could see if you could go in or out. And you could only see it under a light. And that was sort of your ticket to get in and out. And when Jesus comes, it sort of shows up the wickedness of human beings. He experienced the worst of the cruelty that we had to offer. When our creator came, we killed him. And so there was no compassion for him because within ourselves, there isn't compassion. At the deepest level, there's just a hatred of God and of his ways. But the amazing thing is that compassion itself is supernatural. I love what Paul calls our God. He calls him the father of compassion in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And he's just riffing off there of the way that God introduces himself to humanity. So uh, when God appeared to Moses and Moses said, please show me your glory. This is what the Lord said. He said, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. They're some of the most repeated words in the Old Testament. But just pause and think for a minute. This, in a sense, is God giving us his CV. Moses said, show me who you are. The Lord, the Lord. What would you expect it to say next? The magnificent, the creator of the universe the master of all worlds, all stars, and all planets, the one who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the man with the plan. I know how it starts, I know how it ends, and I'm moving all the pieces in the puzzle in between to get to my own chosen end. The God who has all power, the God who has all knowledge, the God who has all wisdom, the God who is eternal, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. When God has to introduce himself or chooses to introduce himself to his people, the first word he uses is compassion. If you take nothing else from tonight, take that home with you. When our God introduces himself, that's the word he chooses first. And so what we see is a God who's compassionate and gracious, wonderfully loving, reaching down to his people. And the truth is, something of his image is seen in all people. 
We think about this last time. And theologians split God's attributes into two groups. If you don't enjoy this bit, that's fine. But I'm just going to explain it to you. And some of you will like this and some of you won't. Some of them are described as incommunicable. That's why I put the words on the screen, just in case I couldn't get them out of my mouth. Incommunicable attributes belong to God alone. So they're things like God is eternal. So he's always been and he will always be. Human beings are born, we have a start, and then we go on eternally. Animals have a start and a finish. That's how we're all different. But God is eternal. He's also all-knowing. No human being, not even in new creation, will know all things. He's all-powerful, and we will never be. And those are all good things. But there are a set of other attributes that are called communicable attributes. And they're the ones that God shares with us as his image bearers. Ways in which we are like God. And one of those is compassion. So when the psalmist is writing, he says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. A compassionate father is actually showing something to their child of what God is like. It's an important attribute that we share in common with the God who made us. And you see traces of it everywhere. I don't know if any of you watch Gogglebox or Planet Earth 3. Either way, you'll have seen what I'm talking about next. If you don't, I really recommend Planet Earth 3. I do enjoy Gogglebox, but I don't recommend it. Uh, so uh, for various reasons. Planet Earth 3 is an innocent pleasure. That's what I would describe that as, although godless. So keep your eyes open for traces of God, because you won't be told of any but they'll be everywhere in front of you. Anyway, the scene I'm talking about is the ostrich scene. Hands off you saw the scene with the ostrich and the chicks. Wow. <laughs> Watch it. Okay, so uh, yeah, it's good. Planet Earth 3 is really worth watching. Um, on there, let me fill you in then about the humble ostrich. Some sort of ostrich, I'm not an expert on ostriches, so I may go wrong here. Actually, decides to lay its eggs in a nest in pretty much the hottest place on earth. And so the parents in turn look after the eggs and they basically spread out their feathers to shield the eggs from the full force of the sun. And so in the clip that Planet Earth 3 showed, you're with me so far, everyone's loving the ostrich, uh, the, the dad is on watch and the mother goes off to get some well-earned rest in the shade. During that time, various chicks are born and the mother comes back and the dad has to make the tough call. The chicks can't survive much longer in the heat of the sun. So they're going to have to move those that have hatched away from the nest and leave the other eggs behind. And so they make the call and you watch as the little chicks assemble themselves under the parents because they can't handle the heat of the day and they make their way out of the nest. But there's a problem. The camera is obviously still fixed on the nest. And after the family have left, you see the pecking of an egg and a little beak coming out and a chick making its way out of the egg and it's born and its parents have gone. Oh, I can see some of you feeling this. <laughs> this is very good for my next point. Anyway, on Gogglebox, they re-showed this clip. And the poor little chick gets out of the nest and is looking for its parents and chirping. 
And mighty Sean Malone from up north, where they're harder than we are down south, has got a cushion in front of his face going, please make it stop. This is an entertainment. We're watching it die. And then there's lots of tears flowing down various people's faces watching this clip. The chick lies down in the ground and is obviously dying and is trying to chirp. And the last chirp that he makes is picked up by one of the parents meters away who wanders back and finds him. And it looks like the chick has died. And they make a noise and the chick then pokes its head up and sees its parent for the first time, gets back on its feet and gets under the parent and walks off. And literally, one of the goggle boxes said, this is the best thing ever, ever. The salvation of one small ostrich for a possibly very difficult life to follow. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because we've learned to be compassionate. Human beings by nature actually love blood sports. We always have. Most generations, most other places in the world would be very excited if that chick was killed preferably more spectacular than just being baked in the sun. But not one of the goggle boxes was willing for the chick to die. All of them were moved by that chick's plight. And that's because to a degree, we're all made in the image of God. And in a country like ours, we've been under Christian influence for a long time of the only man who was completely made in the image of God. And so when Jesus comes, he is full of compassion and when he announces his ministry the words he uses are from isaiah 61. he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was handed to him unrolling it he found the place where it is written the spirit of the lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor good news to the poor Jesus went after those who had nothing. He brought the good news to those who were subsistence living. Poorer than most people in our culture today. People who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. People who lived literally one day at a time with nothing to spare. And he proclaimed the good news to them. He was sent to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, his blessing, his compassion, his grace. And he stopped there. And they'd have expected him to carry on and talk about the year of the, ven the, year of the Lord's vengeance. But he broke off halfway through a line, rolled up the scroll and said, that'll do for today, because that's now being fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the God of compassion. We see it time and again, don't we, in the Gospels. Every story shows us something of his compassion. Even when he's angry, he's angry at people who deny others the right to come close to God because they lack compassion. They think they're better than others. They're not humble. They've put barriers in the way. It's his compassion that moves him to say, get those things out of the way so people can come to my Father in heaven. His compassion flows out of every single page. 
And lastly, compassion is transformational. The whole flow of Isaiah 61 is things don't stay as they were. You notice that? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. They're going to get that. The brokenhearted are going to be bound up. He's going to draw near and do that. Captives are going to be free. Prisoners are going to be released from the darkness. Because this compassion changes things. Those who have been grieving are actually going to be those now who have a crown of beauty on them. Those who have been mourning are going to be full of joy. Those who have been sad are going to have a garment of praise. This changes things. And I love the effect of this gospel of grace. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. The ruin, they'll renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. I've always thought that's a word for us as a country. Real poverty is a lack of the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be plenty of rich people in hell. Plenty of them. But real riches come from knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for generations we've moved away from him. But it's this gospel that can renew and rebuild and restore. It's a gospel that transforms and changes things. And verse 9, it's a gospel that will be known among the nations even, and the offspring among the peoples who will see, or, um, all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. It's a, a compassion that changes and transforms lives and cultures, including our own. It always has done. It was compassion that marked out the early church. People were really struck how they responded to persecution, that they loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them. Glenn Scriver mentions two things in the book in the early church. Children had very little status. There was no abortion in hospitals in those days. So if babies were unwanted, they were put out with the rubbish. That was the common practice. And it was Christians who went around the rubbish dumps rescuing babies. And they became known for it. Who would want these worthless children? Well, none except a persecuted church who had learned to love. There was another story in the book I'd never seen before from the beginning of the 5th century AD. 401, the emperor banned blood sports in the empire. So, I said to you, human beings by nature love blood sports. So Roman culture, Greco-Roman culture for years, it had games. You probably watched the film Gladiator. Uh, you're probably aware of gladiators. Not looking very like you are, but I'm guessing you are. Uh, and they used to fight one another to the death. Do you know how it stopped? A Christian monk watched the gladiators line up. And he just decided he'd had enough before God of the bloodshed. And he climbed into the arena to get between them. The crowd was so incensed that he would do such a thing that they picked up rocks and stoned him to death. But the emperor heard what had happened and was so moved by the courage of that man that he banned blood sports throughout the empire. Do you see how 
that moving with compassion and courage changes things. It's happened in our own country with the abolition of slavery in the city through the work of George Muller and his love and compassion towards orphans, the very poorest in this city. Children without help and without hope, helped by the gospel of grace. You see, if we're going to grow as a country that turns its back on God, what strikes me is what a day of opportunity. Because actually small acts of compassion are going to become rarer in a country that turns its back on Jesus. And I don't know about you, but in one sense that saddens me. But in another sense, when people look at us and say, oh, they're bigoted, they're unkind, they're judgmental. What an opportunity to step in with small acts of compassion like writing a card to someone who's sad. I don't know about you, but I can imagine myself doing that. Being kind to someone you don't even really know well just because the compassion of Christ has moved your heart. But don't think this is going to be easy. I was on Twitter yesterday, it was my day off, and I came across this story. Um, I don't know the guy personally, some of you may do. Anyone here know Graham Miller? He's the um, CEO of London City Mission. And uh, he put this on Twitter, it's about him and his wife. He said, so grateful to God for Alison, who's with me through thick and thin. On Thursday afternoon this week, we were both assaulted in Earlsfield, that's in London, after I challenged some kids for abusing a cafe manager next to the station. We were both punched repeatedly in the head from behind and Alison was knocked down. Kids were still hitting her whilst on the floor and passers-by had to tear them off. I am thankful to the kindness of strangers risking themselves for us. I'm sad our young daughter had to see her mum being treated like that. I'm praying for the girls involved. That should shock you. I am praying for the girls involved. Such is the distortion in our society of male and female roles that this will become more common. That sort of aggression, which is driven by testosterone in men, is being driven by false teaching to girls. It's a different thing, and it is pure evil. I am praying for the girls involved. I pray for London's youth and children every day. They need hope. They need Jesus. After the loss of our son, Harry, this is a family that suffered. At 14 years old, their son took his own life. 14. We felt a desire to help the teenagers of Wandsworth, and this will redouble our efforts. That, brothers and sisters, is compassion. When you're treated with abuse, when your wife is beaten in front of your young daughter, and I saw them both in the ambulance, she is young. 
And instead of saying, I want nothing to do with these people, my family have suffered enough. You say, I'll pray. And I'll redouble my efforts. Because the world out there needs Jesus Christ. Because without him, there is no hope. Let me pray. Father, tonight we want to pray for Graham and Alison Miller. I think what they experience is one of many of our fears is that we would try to do good and be met with evil. That we would react with courage and then find that we're beaten ourselves. And Lord, we know, Lord God, just how frightening that must have been for them and for their daughter. We pray for her in her trauma, even as they get over the grief of losing their son. But Lord, as we read those words, what strikes us most is their compassion and their courage. We pray, Lord, as their hearts turn towards you, even as they talk about doubling down in their efforts to reach teenagers in London. Lord, that you would give them renewed strength. You would heal their wounds, bind up their broken hearts and send them out as oaks of righteousness to display your glory everywhere they go. And Lord, we pray for ourselves. Lord, you have been so kind to us. You've been a God of endless compassion. And Lord, we pray you'd fill us with your spirit, that the spirit of the sovereign Lord who dwells within us might take us out with the good news to those who need it most. Help us not to miss opportunity. Help us not to be too busy to care, but slow us down that we might see the need and respond like Jesus. For we ask these things in his name and for his glory. Amen. <laughs>